Kirby. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, Welcome to, to Los Angeles. Welcome, Glamgelinos. We hope you stay a while. <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, so today we have a guest who I admire so much. She is just AAPI icon, just a badass beauty founder. She is a mom of two, and she makes it look so easy. She has two gorgeous baby sons, and then she's like in L.A. for a second, looking all cute for an event, and then she's like back home with the babies. I don't know how you do it. Thank you for making time to come on. Priscilla Sai. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is such an iconic podcast. Well, thank you. We try. We're so, so thrilled. We have to ask you, what is on your face? So skincare, I only use Coco Pen. People always know this about me, but like my whole bathroom is only Coco Pen for skincare. And then for makeup, I have the Ilia Serum Foundation. I am a Fenty eyeliner stan, the fly liner. And then I have this like new e.l.f. It's like a no smudge eyeshadow pencil thing, which is really cool. And actually it doesn't smudge, I will confirm. And then I use the Sunny's Face like lipstick. Ah, what color? I don't remember the name, but it's like the most like natural one. Yeah, they're all so good. They're so good. Yeah. What a week for Elf, by the way. I know, right? That acquisition of Naturium. But like, it's working. I'm like buying Elf for the first time, like between the Super Bowl and this. Like, I actually bought like Elf for the first time this year and I'm kind of like standing for it. Good for them. <laughs> Seriously. Right? They're just killing it. They like, really are. What like, else can you say? Best in class right now. Absolutely. Totally. And I think, too, like, P, you, you're in San Francisco. You guys are coming for L.A. beauty-wise. I mean, you've always had, you know, obviously Sephora. Now it's, like, the place to be. Yeah. I mean, I feel like San Francisco is, like, such an unknown but, like, secret beauty world. Like, there are a good amount of brands here that people kind of don't really realize, Right. Because we always do a lot of events in LA and stuff like that. But there's even like a lot of creators here that they don't really like broadcast. I live in San Francisco, but like, I don't know, there's a little bit of a community here that I feel like we can foster even more. Priscilla, before you got into beauty, you weren't in the beauty industry. You were a Wall Street investment banker. Literally, when I think of investment bankers, I think of people on phones like screaming and like <laughs> papers flying everywhere and like 80s power suits and people like, spy, buy, buy, sell, 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 and like just screaming at each other. Can you, <laughs> obviously a very dramatic version of a Wall Street investment banker, but can you tell us a little bit more about your background? What led you to that career? And and how that kind of transpired into making your own beauty brand. So I grew up in Michigan, born and raised from Taiwanese immigrant parents. And that's like really kind of crucial to my story. I think both my parents immigrated here separately from Taiwan. They met at Ohio State and they ended up moving to Michigan. 
And I think more crucial than like any part of my background career-wise is the fact that my mom is a business owner. So my mom, she actually, my, my dad got a job at this robotics company in Michigan. So that's why they moved. She ended up finding a job just as a clerk at a kind of like a distribution business, uh, import-export distribution business. And they were distributing a lot of like HVAC, which is like heating, ventilation, air conditioning, like tools and equipment to a bunch of like companies in the Midwest. And she ended up eight years later, buying that business from somebody that he became so close to us, the original owner of that business, that he was like a grandpa to me. So he, I always say that he was like my Jewish grandpa. So he sold the business to my mom. And, you know, granted, she came to the country just like 10 years before, 11 years before without speaking English, right? But she was like so smart and worked so hard and she ended up buying the business and she's run that business for almost 30 years. And it's a small business, very steady business, but I grew up going to that company and I would like stuff flyers. I would staple things. I would create these catalogs. My sister and I would fight in like the rooms and, you know, we'd always be put to work and we'd always get in some fight. My brother would like, he had a duty one summer of like cleaning the kitchen. And like, we just like very much grew up with that very much a big part of our lives. And so um, for me, like literally since I was five years old, people would ask me like what I want to do. And I would say, I want to be a boss. And like, it's like funny, but like I heard my mom's people in her company call her boss. They would say, Hey boss, like blah, blah, blah. So I would tell people like, what do I want to be? I want to be a boss. And so that's like a huge part of kind of my upbringing, you know, growing up, my parents were like Harvard or nothing. Right. And so I was like, studying for the SATs and all that stuff. Long story short, I didn't get into Harvard, but I ended up going to Wharton undergrad. So at Penn and I did business because I was like, I want to be a boss. I'm going to do business. So, you know, there you go, go to undergrad business school. But when I went to Wharton, everybody there, and I had no idea what that like finance even meant, but basically you just kind of go into this like finance path. And I didn't really kind of understand what that was and just ended up being like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do finance. So I ended up, you know, recruiting and and just doing investment making and equity research for a couple of years. It's funny because people always mention that, but like when I left my job, I was 25 and I had started at 21. I was like a very like much like a junior, you know, I was an associate level. I didn't have this like super expansive career in finance. I was very, very young when I quit my job and decided I was going to start my own business. And I was also like very much an associate. So I was like the one who was like supporting my main analyst and I was doing the calls, but it was more like as very, I was like a young woman back in 2009 into 2013 in finance, which is like, honestly, I look back and it's, it's a whole different world. I've actually really liked the job and I love the work that I was doing. It was super interesting, but I was also in a lot of ways, like super uncomfortable because there was only, you know, a couple of girls and we kind of clung to each other. I'm still like very, very good friends with some of my friends there, but we were very much in like a male dominated field and it was uncomfortable back then. So it's such a 180, you know, with the work that I do now, but it was, I was young and I was like, you know, kind of just trying to like keep up with the rat race in this world that like just wasn't really, you know, at that time, like catering at all for young women. Were your parents like, absolutely not. You cannot leave your job to start your own business. No, you know, my parents were always 
super supportive because they knew that I had this like ambition to start a business. And my mom was really excited about that. You know, like she was always excited for one of her kids to get involved in business. And there was a time period where it was like, do you want to learn from my business? And do you want to take over my business one day? But I think both my parents, like they ingrained in us this idea of just like creating our own. And like all my siblings, you know, were very much of that nature. It was like, you know, we understood the value of a dollar. We wanted to create our own. My parents had this thing where growing up, like we had to work at quick service restaurants. Like my sister worked at McDonald's. They were very specific. They were like, you have to work at McDonald's. But then when I was like old enough, McDonald's wasn't hiring. So I worked at Fuddruckers <laughs> and my brother worked at Panera Bread. <laughs> my sister worked at McDonald's. And uh, I was like really happy that McDonald's wasn't hiring because me and my friend would go there like every day, you know, and get like fries after school and all this stuff. And I was just glad that I was didn't have to like serve my friends, but I was a bus girl at Fuddruckers. So they were so supportive. I mean, they were shocked when I told them it was a skincare company. Like first, my mom has perfect skin. My dad had a lot of acne growing up, but he was also like, that's the least of his concerns, right? He like literally was like served the army in Taiwan, immigrated. Like that's the least of his concerns with his skin, but it was a big thing. Like my mom like always talks about when she first met my dad, he had tons of acne, like face, bag, chest, like everywhere. Right. And that was a big part of it. And so my sister and I got my dad's skin and my brother got my mom's skin, but they knew it was such an insecurity. My mom didn't know what to do with our acne almost because she was just like, she had such perfect skin. So she was just trying to like throw us like anything like Clinique toner and this and that, and, you know, just try to do anything possible. But it was a kind of uncharted territory, but they knew that it was such an insecurity of mine and I didn't have perfect skin. Like they visibly saw that I didn't have perfect skin. And especially back in that day, it was very like, well, you're, I don't know, like, how are you going to start like a skincare company, a beauty company? They were just kind of like, okay, we'll see how that works out. But like very excited that I was starting my own business. Okay. So I want to know Coco Kind, the name, where does it come from? What, what was the impetus for naming it that? And like, what was the journey to get Coco Kind to where you could start it? Yeah. So, you know, keep in mind again, 25, decided to quit my job. And I know nothing about the beauty industry, like at all. I'm not even considering myself like in the beauty industry at this time. Like I'm like starting a skincare company. I don't even like understand the beauty industry at all. Someone told me that brands that start with C, this is a true story. Brands that start with C are more successful and people remember them. So I'm like, okay, this is like important for my future success. So I'm like, I gotta think of words that start with C. Separately, I was always extremely inspired by businesses that had a give back component to them and were doing something different. A lot of those brands came from the food world. So like Whole Foods was, I covered the Whole Foods stock actually. So I knew a lot about like how they got started and their mission, how they were transforming like food industry, et cetera, as well as a lot of other like more indie food brands that were coming up. Anyways, I love that component and I was always obsessed with this idea of like business is an extremely strong and powerful platform for change. And so kind was always like a part of, you know, my vocabulary when I talked about the business that I would start. And so that was like, okay, I definitely want that. And honestly, the cocoa was super random. Like I don't have a good story for it. It was at that time, there was superfoods in our in our line and that was a big thing. And so when I launched and so that it was kind of like, okay, well, cocoa is kind of representative of the superfoods in our skincare and then kind is a big part of like why we're doing this too. So boom, like cocoa kind and there's a lot of C sounding, you know, syllables in that. 
Wow. I was like, is this a coconut focused line? Yeah. Is there like a coconut, you know, alkane in this that like transforms the skin? That's so crazy. No, Priscilla's just like all business. She's like, it's a lucky C. There's a C, <laughs> there's a double C, and then there's a kind. We got it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Coco Kind's philosophy is like always being transparent about what's in the products, what it does, keeping it simple and nothing too harsh, right? So like products that work, but they work over time. How do you stay competitive in a market where, you know, consumers just like want perfect skin right away? They want as many actives as possible, or they think that that's what their skin wants. And they just want more, more, more. What is the thinking behind Coco Kind's philosophy? And how can you like stay true to the mission when there's just, yeah, so many brands that are just hawking all of these like extreme vitamin C's and retinols and consumers that are just like, well, I tried this for one night and it didn't work. Well, first, like we've never been a trend driven brand. I use Coco Kind and I'm not a founder who's like using a bunch of products. And I think it's a misconception, you know, secondly, that all consumers are like that. I'm a consumer who like really was not obsessed with skincare, like at all. I'm obsessed with Coco Kind, but I'm not obsessed with skincare. And there's a lot of consumers like me. We talk to consumers. I personally talk to consumers at least once a week. And our consumers are people who I don't think are like active participants in the beauty industry in the way that a lot of us who are involved are. They're not trying to use like 10 skincare steps, right? A lot of them end up using 10 skincare products, but they're not like intending to do that, right? And they're not like trying to chase the trends. They're not like, oh my God, niacinamide isn't everything I use these days. Can I, I'm so over it. Like they're actually not like that, right? They're like, they want it to be functional and mm -hmm. effective, but they're also like, I don't know how to use things. I'm overwhelmed by it. And they're not like active participants in the way that, you know, a lot of us are, especially the way that social media kind of conglomerates the beauty community. And so that is something to think about when it comes to the beauty industry, because I, there's a lot of consumers that are not spoken to. And we forget about those people, but Coco Kind doesn't forget because that's the consumer that I was, right? Like it was very much skincare by like force. It wasn't because I like wanted to. And so that is very much like who we create our brand for is like the consumer who really isn't spoken to by the existing beauty industry. And for those people, our solution, you know, ingredients that are working really well for you we're not going to ever put it at some super high percentage because then it's like too much risk for them versus benefit. And, you know, we cater to them, us being a brand that they can trust using every day and not, you know, kind of ruin their skin barrier, et cetera. But also that like they really love using, it's affordable and they trust the quality of the formula and the ingredients that we choose. So I don't know, I think there's like something really innovative about that because we're addressing a, a consumer base that is huge, but not often spoken to. And then you guys are, again, always like list like what's in the product. Mm -hmm. You don't try to like gatekeep. Mm -mm. You don't hide your secret sauce. <laughs> so other brands, you know, competitors can see that. Mm -hmm. Was that a decision you made early on where you're just like, it's more important to me that my customers know like what they're getting. And, you know, if another brand comes along and steals it, so be it. 
I think we've always known that there's pros and cons with this transparency that we are really proud to lead in the industry. Um, I remember when 2020, when we changed our packaging, you know, to have the formula facts and sustainability facts and everything, it was like a decision, like, is this going to be a problem for us? And I mean, the reality is that like so much of the way the beauty and skincare industry is done right now is like, oh, hey, I like this product. Here's the IL, try to recreate it or do something different or whatever. Right. And so if someone wanted to do that before and after our formula facts and level of transparency, I think they could do that. Right. If someone wanted to like try to recreate our products and of course people have, I think that is fine, you know, given that it's an entire package that we're going for, which is, you know, the quality of the formula, the pricing, the brand, the positioning, and the relationship at the end of the day that we're cultivating with our consumer. So I don't know, I think it's already such a big part of the beauty industry that I don't feel like it's a huge risk more than it was before if we weren't as transparent, generally. Any successful brand is going to deal with that. And generally, I feel like the consumer deserves that. And I think that's like when we talk about being innovative, there's so many ways to do that in the beauty industry. And this is our particular way of just making sure that the trust and the relationship we've developed with our customer via our products and brand is like so unique and special. And so I wouldn't give it up. I think there's just so much like pros for us in particular than negatives and all the negatives would exist either way. Priscilla, can you explain to the listeners how y'all's formula facts may differ from another brands. Like I'm looking on your website and I do see like a full ingredient list and then you can click another link and it kind of does like an entire blog post about the particular product, what's in it, how those ingredients work, how to use it, how it's different from other products that you have in the line currently. What differentiates Coco Kinds, you said Formula Facts, from other brands? I actually don't know if it's on our website these days, but on the side of every box, we have a formula facts where we list the percentages of by bucket of type of ingredients. So it's too small, but basically, you know, this is our chlorophyll discoloration serum. And so you can see the hero ingredients at 3%. It lists exactly what those ingredients are. It says carriers, so humectants, plant extracts, stabilizers, skin conditioners, preservatives, pH adjusters. Every single one of them has what the ingredient is or are in those buckets, as well as the specific percentages. So you can see 87% of this is a carrier, then 7% is humectant, then you have, you know, whatever, it goes down preservatives and this and that. And then I should also mention, we have pH value, we have feel on skin, light or heavy, and how it smells. So, you know, this, it says unscented, feel on skin is, we have, you know, kind of like four markers. So it's at the second marker. So we have a lot of detail on the side of every package and we are very much retail and, you know, online. But when people are picking this up in the store, they are able to like learn a little bit more and we're providing a little bit of context around like what, you know, the ingredients are doing. And of course we have to educate a lot on that. But yeah, so that's, I think what we mean by just like an increased level of transparency on every product. Love that. Okay. I want to talk about reformulations because this has actually been a really big topic of conversation. I was talking to a a different founder this week Mm -hmm. about how they had formulated a product. It was about to go, you know, to the manufacturer to start being created so they could distribute it and all this other good stuff. And then the supplier comes back and is like, we're completely out of this ingredient that you formulated with. And it was a sunscreen. And so they had to go back to the drawing board and it was very expensive. And she was saying that 
supply chain was like a big topic of conversation during the pandemic. Like, oh, we're currently not available to produce this product or have it in stock because of supply chain issues. But currently there is a a huge supply chain issue happening. And I would love your take on A, do you think that there's still a supply chain issue problem? And B, have you ever had to reformulate a product because of supply chain? Or why have you decided to reformulate products in the past? So first question on supply chain, it has been difficult since the pandemic, no question. And difficult from a number of angles. One, availability, two, lead times, and three, price. So all of our raw materials during the pandemic, it was crazy, right? Like it's varying degrees of price hikes, like varying degrees of lead time going from four weeks, your manufacturer can order your ingredient and it comes four weeks later to then being 12 to 16 weeks. Like that is insane, right? Like, and we're still dealing with that. Like we're very like paranoid all the time. Like we got to put in the PO, we got to make sure that, you know, we're staying on top of the purchasing of it. Like we're super paranoid because of that experience from the pandemic. And a lot of the lead times are still really, really extended, but some of them have come down. And of course, freight was a big issue. So the lead times generally in the past couple of years, like quadrupled. Right now, it's probably back down to like being like, I don't know, double the time, but not quadruple. But it's still a long time, which means that, you know, your operations team and your purchasing team really has to stay on it. It's so complicated, the supply chain. I'm so proud of like our ops team because they really like stay on it and really have an amazing framework and system to do so. But it takes a lot of people to make sure that that happens. So yeah, the supply chain is more complicated than ever. And then of course, like with any price increase, whenever a supplier increases a price because they have a reason to, they never take it back down, you know, and you have to fight tooth and nail for like some relief when it comes back down, but it's never going to go back down to what it was before. So that's rough, you know, and that's definitely something that everybody in the industry is going to have a little bit of a compressed margin than before, unless you take price increases. But even your price increases, you know, sometimes are never really going to cover it because you're really not going to pass on 100% of everything to the consumer. So yeah, that's the first. On reformulation because of ingredient, I actually don't think because of a supply chain issue, uh, like out of stock or something, we've had to reformulate, but we've gone out of stock. Like for instance, the ingredient in our ceramide serum, which is our bestseller, that ingredient at one point last year had like almost like a 24 week lead time, which is like you have six months. And then that's like when it hits your manufacturer and then they have their own production time. So basically from start to finish, it would be like eight to nine months of just, we have to make sure that's how long we're thinking about RPOs. And so, yeah, we have other stocks of that and, and it is a pain, but it's also a major, major ingredient that we love. So we're not going to reformulate. There have been suggestions from our vendor and like, well, here's another ceramide blend. And, you know, would you consider this? And we're like, no, we can't. It's a, you know, here ingredient, we're not going to change this. So we just have to deal with it, you know, and make sure that we're staying super on top of it with that ingredient in particular. And then, yeah, third question on reforms. We have, of course, reformulated and we do that regularly. Mostly we do that for the tail of our portfolio. And, you know, we have 30 products in our line, which is a lot. And there are a lot of products that we have to look at on a yearly basis and be like, instead of just like launching new products, because we actually only have like two, three launches a year. 
So we don't launch like a lot of products, but there's a lot of opportunity, you know, at the tail end of your portfolio and you have to review that. So we will a lot of times look at that and be like, is it a discontinuation or is there something we can do to based on the reviews, based on sentiment or why it's not hitting with the market of why, you know, how we should change this to make it better. And I think that's always going to be a conversation every single year. You mentioned like a 24 week lead time, which just, I would be paranoid. I would just be losing my mind. This might be extremely basic and so low level that you're like, yes, of course. But is something like that, could that make or break a brand? Like if your hero product is taking 24 weeks to like get the hero ingredient for it, could that kill a brand if they don't process everything properly? Yeah, I think it's it's very complicated. You know, like you have to stay on track of things. Like we have so many milestones to get a PO, to get the product in your warehouse, right? And yeah, like, I don't know if we were smaller, like if we would have been able to handle that, like, you know, complication in supply chain, probably not. One, when you're just starting out, you probably would never choose an ingredient like that because it's like, okay, like that's just impossible, obviously, for so many reasons. But then if you're also dealing with it from an ingredient you already chose, like it just requires like so much organization, you know, and a little bit of a sophistication in, in your operations. I'm curious what ingredients are going for the highest prices right now. Or like is like niacinamide like so expensive now versus like three years ago? You know what's crazy is retinol is so freaking expensive right now. Like any retinoid on the market is so expensive. So we're launching a retinol, you know, in October and it is so expensive. And that is like not going down, you know, anytime soon. So that's the one that's a little bit shocking. Like any, as you guys guess, like any like buzzy ingredient, it's like then all of a sudden all these people are into it and then it, you know, that jacks up the price and supply chain goes tight. And, you know, it's like this vicious cycle. But of course, ceramides for us, we've experienced a lot of price hikes on that super expensive. But the retinol in particular right now is like, it's definitely very, very expensive. I heard glycerin is just astronomical. Yeah. And I also heard that shea butter which glycerin makes sense to me, but shea butter, that makes me feel that like not a lot of people are using it. But I do think like now that I'm thinking about it, I look at things, it's like, oh, shea butter's in there, but it's not like a promoted ingredient. You know what I mean? Right. It shouldn't have been just like a, a standard ingredient that's always been popular, but maybe it's been buzzy lately. That's interesting. That is so funny. All right. Let's buy some stocking glycerin. Yeah. <laughs> get, get, don't formulate with glycerin. No, just kidding. We love glycerin over here. Okay. Priscilla, so Coco Kind often, if you Google it, like it gets looped into the clean beauty category a lot, whether that was your intention or not. I know, obviously, you are so big on transparency and sustainability, but like when people, especially consumers who are not in the beauty world like we are, when they think of clean beauty, there's like obviously this, there's a lot of fear mongering that's involved. We all know this. There's two, I think, conversations happening around clean beauty right now, where one, there's like the people who are diehard and like, you know, are making those TikTok content, like trying to scare everyone into all the chemicals that are inside our beauty products. And then there's the other conversation where it's like, actually, no, you know, like water is a chemical. It's all fine. Like we're going to be okay. And actually, this is good for you. So how do you feel about like being, you know, looped into this clean beauty category 
And if you have any thoughts on just like the future of the category in general. One, like eight years ago, that was intentional. Eight years ago when I launched, it was the three products that we had were five ingredients or less. You know, I had such an insane experience with my skincare and like such an irritated like skin barrier that I would put on lotion and it would sting my face every day. It would be red. I would be peeling, you know, I was using a definitely or different and you know, all that stuff for my acne. Anyways, I got to a point where I was like, I used oil and I was like, this is like one ingredient oil. And I was like, this is amazing. My skin didn't like burn. So I came into starting this company being like, we're going to use as simple of ingredients as possible, as simple formulas as possible. Like there are a lot of anhydrous formulas, you know, waterless formulas. And so it was like, have it be as few of ingredients as possible over the years. And at that time, it was also like, you know, we're going to be a clean beauty brand, which is like, you know, why we're looped into all that. I think, you know, over the years, it was just like so much of an education from our end as a brand, you know, kind of like very much growing up in this industry of realizing that it's not about the number of ingredients. And it's it's not about, you know, even what ingredients it's about like the formula. And there's so much that goes into that. So this idea of being a clean beauty brand, yes, it doesn't really mean anything. And two, everything is about like how much it's used in the formula and, and, at the end of the day, how it reacts with someone's skin. And that is like very personal. And so that was very much a part of like our, in 2019, like kind of realizing that this is like an empty claim here and it really doesn't mean much. And yeah, there is some the element of like, we're hearing consumers give us credit for things that we're like, mm, that doesn't feel that good, right? Like it doesn't feel that good. doesn't feel that factual, right? And being like, okay, we need to let go of this term. And so that was the impetus behind the formula facts and sustainability facts is like, because we were say we were a clean and sustainable company. And then, you know, it's just like so much realization, like that's just not the brand that we're going to be. And that's not what we believe. Like we don't say we're a sustainable company now, right? We don't say we're a clean beauty company now. Instead, we have our carbon label footprint. We have our formula facts on the side and we educate on like why these ingredients are used in the way that they are. So five years ago, we didn't use phenoxyethanol and today we do. And there are consumers that ask us like, hey, I'm disappointed to see phenoxyethanol in this ingredient, you know, and then we explain like what it's doing, why it's there, what, you know, what percent, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, I think we very much went through an evolution of being like, what is our, you know, belief and understanding? And then how do we make sure that that's coming across in the way that we want to? And how do we evolve? So to me, like, I'm really proud of that evolution. And I also feel like that's important too. Like, it's okay to change your view and it's okay to like, you know, be better and and know more over time, especially for a brand like us, you know, it's very much like bootstrapping, like me doing demos at Whole Foods with like my oil blend, you know, in the first couple of years, like that's okay to, to grow. So anyways, I think over time, and there are always going to be people who don't want to use parabens, who don't want to use sulfates, like all these things. And some of those things are like, for good reason, doesn't react well on their skin. They have sensitive skin. And, you know, for a lot of those reasons, we won't use certain ingredients, mostly because we're optimizing for sensitive skin. But yeah, I think, you know, ultimately, like consumer preferences will always range. And there are going to be the people who are like EW doing every single thing and won't go above something that's a two, you know, and then there are people who they don't care at all. But I think for us, it's just about like, 
what's factual out there and how do we represent ourselves in the best way possible. But yeah, it has been interesting in the past couple of years. We're not, we're kind of lumped into that, but we don't say that. And then there's other Mm -hmm. brands that do. And so it's like a little bit tricky, like how we like simply talk about our market positioning when we are not using claims like clean and sustainable. Yeah. Do you feel like it's going to still be even a relevant term or category of beauty in the next five years? Yeah, personally, I do. You know, I, I think it's still there are a lot of consumers who are looking for that, that don't have like a real understanding quite yet of like what that means to them. And I think there will be an exploration of like what that means to you. You know, I think it's important that like brands who believe in it or don't share why without judgment, because like there's a preference for everything. So I think like sometimes like when I see the other argument, it can feel kind of like you're dumb for believing this. And to me, it's kind of just like, okay, like, let's like explain it to people why to use phenoxyethanol, why you would use a paraben, like all these things without like the fear of like being shamed on or, or vice versa as well. So, you know, to me, it's just like, there's a consumer for everything. And I, I do think it's going to be relevant. So the burden of education, I think is still on brands to like, make sure to lead that without judgment. So Coco Kind is in Ulta. We love an Ulta over here. And I'm curious, I think a lot about brand founders. And when you decide to go into retail, I don't know what I don't know, but I can imagine that it is likely a lot of work, especially when you're trying to figure out, okay, it's going to be in this many stores. Like when when people say, okay, we're going to be in every store in the United States or we're going to be this or that. That sounds like a lot of money. (laughs) That sounds like a lot of money that you have to invest in order to have these products in even like 25% of Ulta stores. Can you talk a little bit about the retail partnership of it all when you are a founder of a brand and maybe offer some advice to people listening that they really need to take into consideration before deciding to move forward with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Priscilla, you guys just in the last year have now entered every single Ulta Beauty store, right? You guys were online and in some stores, but now officially you walk in and there is a Coco Kind presence, which is yeah. major. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But scary, as Kirby said. Totally. So yeah, today we're on every Target and every Alta, as well as, you know, some other stores. And it's been a journey. You know, it's it's a lot to get there. I think the number one misconception from both founders as well as consumers is that you go into a retailer and it's like stuff flies off the shelf. Like that is not how it is. And like, just to kind of put it into context, when you go into a store, the retailer is ordering a lot of times like six units per store, maybe nine because they need some for the warehouse, you know? So think about that. It's not that many products. Like a lot of times I hear people and they'll be like, oh, I need to have millions of units for like whatever. And I'm like, no, like Target has 1800 doors, right? So if you're going into every single one of them at max, they're ordering like 18,000 units, which is a lot, you know, for sure. Of course, you know, it's a huge order, but it's not like it's like a hundred thousand units or something. And by the way, that could last for a while. Like you might not see a replenishment for like, three months or something, you know, especially if you're a new brand, like it could be a while. So that's important. And I think it's like a lot of times people are like so scared by it and about the order. They're so excited by it because they're like, oh my God, it's going to be like millions of dollars of revenue. That's not really the case. So it's very tangible. And by the way, like the expectation 
a lot of these categories, you know, we're talking about moving like one unit a week per store as like a strong performance. So like, think about it's like, literally, you have six units on the shelf and like one consumer in that store bought one a week, and that's good. So putting that into context, like it paints like how hard it is also, because if that's the expectation of performance, you understand how hard it is to get like the one consumer to buy one product off your shelf. Like, so yeah, it's, I think a little bit more real than I think people realize. And it's not like it sits there and it's like, oh my God, people are like putting a bunch of stuff in their basket. Like, oh my God, no, that's literally what I think. I'm like, oh my God, you get it. And you have to just like shove it back in there. You're going to replenish, replenish, replenish. That's crazy. I had no idea. Especially for like new brands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then like, you know, you're in an Ulta and you're next to a million other brands that have a ceramide serum. So, you know, how do you compete? So that said, is it important, you think, to have a presence in a store or is online fine? No, I think the, the way, especially today, retail is super important. I think online only is a very uphill battle for brands. And, you know, when I started eight years ago, I mean, first I started with no money, nothing. And so I literally was selling to like one customer at a time at Whole Foods, like by the meat aisle (laughs) of the table and like, you know, all that stuff. And so like, yeah, I literally sold to one customer at a time today. I don't think you could do that because we're just in this, like the flywheel is going and you got to move and you got to move faster. Like the time period of like, you know, slowly creating your brand and not to say it can't be done, but it's to me today, it is a lot harder, both in retail and in not. And so you, if you're going to do something, you kind of have to have like an omni-channel presence, like pretty quickly. Totally. Okay. Wait, I have one more question. What is the difference in your opinion? Kirby and I talk about this all the time between an Ulta beauty customer and a target customer. Are they the same? Are they different? There's a lot of overlap actually between, you know, the customers. It's more that like Alta is like the destination, you know, of like you're going, you're clearly looking for beauty or skincare or hair care, et cetera. And Target, it's like, oh, I can accidentally be going into the skincare aisle at Target because, you know, I'm here for some other reason. There's a lot of overlap generally, you know, in the demographics, at least with our customers, you know, who shop at both. It's just a question of like whether it's a destination or not. Yeah. It makes sense then why they have an Ulta Beauty and a Target. Yeah, exactly. Love that. Did you already celebrate 10 years? Did you, we miss your birthday or is it coming? So 10 years for the brand. Yeah, the that's 25. So in a year and a half or so. But I quit my job 10 years ago. Yeah, at JP Morgan. Yeah. Woo! We love a job quitter. We love it. <laughs> we love it. I'm a job quitter. So Sarah's next. No, just kidding. She's not. I'm next, but don't tell my employer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just kidding. I got kids. I got kids. So what has like been, I'm sure there have been many, but like your proudest moment in the last decade, if you're having a hard day, what do you reflect on where you're like, I can keep going because of this moment? Hmm. It's so hard to say. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, you know, like eight and a half years is a long time in this industry. And I feel like I've had truly four, at least four different jobs because there's been such transformative, you know, periods of this business. So it's hard for me to say like one moment. I always remember it when I was just starting out and when I went door to door to Whole Foods stores in Northern California, literally, and I asked the store people to try the products. So when I got an email from the Whole Foods Northern California buyer and she said that she wanted to bring it in, 
that was only a couple months after we quote unquote launched, which really meant nothing because I had like zero customers. So like nobody was there to help me launch. But then when the Northern California person emailed me, I think that was like my still like my fondest memory of like, oh, oh, like I felt like this could be real. Like this is amazing. Like a big retailer is asking for Coca Kind. And that was very, very early on, but still probably my most like fond, you know, kind of like sentimental memory of the business. But yeah, it's, we've been around for a while. And so I think over time, unfortunately or fortunately, like the highs become less high and the lows become not as low. And so, you know, that's kind of something you, you just have a lot of baggage that you're dealing with. So you, all the highs, you kind of, you know, to look around the corner because something bad is about to happen or could happen. So, you know, I think the more time you do it, unfortunately, you have more baggage to carry around. It's like life, Priscilla, we all have more baggage. But no, I really do like, I just admire just how true to like your mission you always have been, but also how you are, you know, flexible. And like you said, you talk about the evolution of the brand, like you grow with your consumer, you grow with the industry, always honest. And I think that's why like you have such a big customer base and loyal community. And so it's just like very commendable, especially, you know, Kirby and I talk to a lot of beauty founders and people who just sort of jump on the trends and try to just like be cool. And so, so it's a lot to be proud of. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for coming on. Where can we shop Coco Kind? Where can we find you and support you? Thank you. So we are available at every Target, every Alta, every Whole Foods, every shoppers in Canada, and of course, online and at Coco Kind on Instagram and at Priscilla.Sci. Yo, shoppers in Canada, I've heard is the place like you want to be in shoppers. It's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's not like a typical drugstore. Like, it's beautiful. And they have, it's a beauty destination. It's a little bit of an Alta meets CVS kind of, you know, ish. Yeah. And there's a lot of them. So it's great. Let's go to Canada. Yeah. Eh, mate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kirby, we're done. Okay, we're done. We're done. All right, that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back on Tuesday with the week's most buzzy beauty news. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify so you don't miss any breaking beauty news or product reviews. And if you want to support us, be sure to follow us at Gloss Angeles Pod on all platforms and join our Facebook group. Plus, find every product we recommend on our website, glossangelespod.com, as well as links to the stories and news we report each week. You can follow us, your hosts. I'm Sarah Tan, that's S-A-R-A-T-A-N, on all social platforms. And I'm Kirby Johnson, K-I-R-B-I-E, on all social platforms. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.